Welcome to the sermon podcast of South Hills Church in Costa Mesa. My name is Chris Kretzu, and I'm the campus pastor here. Thank you for carving out the time to listen to this today. I hope that you will be encouraged and challenged, and ultimately that you'll have a deeper sense of God's love for you. I'll be back after the message is over, but until then, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Names are, uh, they can be a funny thing. Uh, Names are uh, meaningful things. Names are weighty things. Uh, I remember the struggle, the challenge of trying to come up with a name uh, for our boys. Um, when Ez and I uh, found out we were pregnant, we had a list of probably 15 names that we totally loved and agreed on for girls. And there was not a single boy's name that we could agree on. And then we got two boys, uh, which is awesome. Uh, but we went through this. You don't realize how many people you dislike until you start suggesting baby names uh, to your spouse. And then I was like, no, I know somebody. They're terrible. Uh, I cannot call my son that. Uh, you start to discover all kinds of old boyfriends or old girlfriends, like all of this drama attached to names. But names, they have a connection. There's an emotional connection sometimes that we have. Uh, you know, once you get past that point of, a, of finding a name that you like and that you can agree on, uh, there's this other aspect. You have to start to say, okay, does this name sound okay? Does it sound okay with our last name? If they put their initials down, does it spell a bad word? Uh, you have all these other things you have to start working through. I remember one of the names that I suggested for Mason uh, before he was Mason uh, was Hezekiah which I think is a cool name, and everybody agreed with me, and then Ez said, no, and I said, of course, why? She's like, well, everybody calls me Ez, and they're just going to call him Hez, and then it's going to be like Ez and Hez, Ez and Hez, and I was like, I think you might be overthinking it a little bit, but I I don't know, Uh, but there's this, you know, like, does it sound okay, does it flow okay, first name and last name, does it make sense, and And then once you get through that stage of hurdles, there's the, well, what does this name even mean? Does this name mean something that we like? Uh, I remember there was a couple, um, some friends of ours, and they ended up with a uh, a surprise fourth pregnancy, and their three older kids all had names that started with K, and they wanted to find a name for their fourth. There was a daughter that started with a K, and they wanted it to be something biblical. And so uh, they reached out to me because I'm a pastor. And they said, okay, we need a, a name for our baby, and you're going to pick it for us. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't say that, but they're like, are there any Bible names that start with K for a girl? And I was like, man, you guys are really giving me just narrow margins to work in here. But somehow the Spirit of the Lord gave me the name, and I remember there was someone named Korah. In the Old Testament, I was like, great, this is awesome. So I said, hey, it's Korah. It's spelled with a K. I can't believe that I passed this test. But here you go. And they're like, we actually really like that. That sounds really beautiful. And that would work with all of our other kids and blah, blah, blah. The next day, they called me. And they're like, hey, we looked up Korah in the Bible. Not a great lady. Uh, I don't think we're going to pick that name for our child. I was like, look, you just asked me for a name, okay? So, um, but name, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's difficult. It's a difficult process to come through. And, and in uh, ancient Israel, and really everywhere in the ancient Near East, names were so much more than just a tag. They were actually, they, they held meaning and weight. That's why oftentimes in the Bible, you'll actually find people's names change when they change, 
when they start to live a different way or, or something happens in their life, it's a significant shift for them. Oftentimes they get a new name. Names are, are really important and weighty things. Jesus's name, the meaning of Jesus, actually means God saves. It's pretty accurate. They nailed it with that one. Uh, but 700 years before Jesus was born, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And prophets, they would speak on behalf of God to God's people, or sometimes they would speak on behalf of God's people to God. They were kind of this middleman. And, and Isaiah is a prophet, and he says this, 700 years before Jesus was born, he didn't have the name Jesus, but he did give this Savior, this Messiah, four different names each of them carrying a ton of meaning for us. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse six and seven, it says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, and everybody say these out together with me, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Now, I grew up in a home, a lot of my parents' music was on record players, uh, or on records, and I guess we had record players, is that how that works? Uh, And uh, I remember there was one that we'd listen to oftentimes at Christmas, Handel's Messiah, and there was a song, it's a beautiful song called, He Shall Be Called, and I would sing it for you today, but it only sounds good if there's 200-person choir singing it. So it's, but I, and every time I hear this verse, I think of that song, and I think of this like triumphant, joyful, loud proclamation of who Jesus is. And it's an interesting thing because it's, it's Jesus. Like we know Jesus is Jesus. It's the Son of God. Jesus is God and man, and it's Jesus. But there are these other names that are given to him. And over the next four Sundays, we're going to look at each one of these names so we can understand because each one of these names actually changes the way that we can relate to Jesus. It changes the relationship that we can have. It changes the nature of how we interact with or trust in this Emmanuel, this Savior that has come that we celebrate at Christmas. And it's interesting because even though that this uh, was prophesied, these names were given almost 3,000 years ago, which is a long time. Um, The setting that was described doesn't feel like it's that different from today. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, a few verses earlier, he describes life this way. He says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He's like talking about two levels of darkness here. Like the people walking in darkness have seen a light and the people living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It makes me think of like a month ago when the time change happened and all of a sudden everything got just pitch black at 5 p.m. sharp. It was the hardest time change adjustment I've ever had in my life. I was so confused every single night. Uh, I was ready for bed at like 7 p.m. I mean, it was a very confusing time. But he's talking about this like deep, oppressive, like almost you picture like a blanket of darkness, this weight And not just this sense of, oh, it was a really tough day, but people living in a deep darkness, people walking in a deep darkness, this kind of sense that I'm not sure how to actually get out of it. I'm not sure if it's possible to get out of it. 
Darkness is disorienting and confusing and painful. The darkness of that time was oppressive. People were trapped in it and wandering. Black and thick darkness that they lived in. And I think that I would imagine most of us, maybe probably all of us, have felt at some point like we were stuck in some sort of darkness. Stuck in some sense of, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm not sure if this can ever get fixed. I'm not sure if I know what's outside of this current reality that I find myself in. I think a lot of us have felt some aspect of this deep darkness, and no matter what we tried or what we changed, we just couldn't move out of that space. And Isaiah says that in the middle of that deep darkness that feels overwhelming and oppressive and like there's nothing that can heal or fix or give hope or a sense of direction, in the middle of that, a light is dawning. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, this light that breaks through the darkness. One of the things that is uh, so impossible for us to really wrap our minds around, and there's metaphors and illustrations of, of how we can explain this, but even those metaphors break down. None of them do it justice, but the, the bigness, I'm not sure that's a word, so just roll with me, the bigness of God This reality that God existed before time and will exist after time, that there is this massiveness to who God is, because we can't even really understand anything outside of time. We're, We're limited to this idea. Revelation talks about the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and just kind of this this massive spanning reality of who God is. And the Christmas story is that God then, in a very certain time, 2,000 years ago, in a very certain place in, in Bethlehem, and in a certain form, in the form of an infant, God steps into time, Emmanuel, alpha and omega, with us. It is this massive, overwhelming reality. And because he lived a human life, he understands what it's like to be human, what it's like to be you and I, what we are going through. And I think that a lot of times we don't really connect that uh, as, a, as a possibility. Like, well, sure, Jesus was man, but he was still God. And so he couldn't have been, he couldn't really understand that much of what I'm going through. But there's this reality when he has given the name Wonderful Counselor that it's not just that Jesus has like good perspective and can give some helpful advice, but that Jesus has lived that journey, has been in those experiences. And the reason why he is our Wonderful Counselor is because of the the understanding that he has. There's a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews. And over and over in this letter, it talks about Jesus and and oftentimes refers to him as our high priest and kind of this mediator between us and God. But what it says over and over throughout this letter is that there is this understanding that Jesus has because he was human. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, it says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. 
I want us to think about that for a second because I, I don't want you to think too much about your temptations, but just think about this reality that we assume that our thoughts, the ways we're tempted, the things that we kind of you know, daydream about or, or long for or kind of let our mind wander, the things we struggle with, we assume that there is no way that God could ever possibly understand this, but we're being told that Jesus suffered when he was tempted and so he is able to help those of us who are tempted. There is this understanding there. He goes on to say in chapter four that we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Now, I don't have time to talk about the difference between these two words, but do you guys know that sympathy and empathy are different things? He's not saying we have a high priest who sympathizes, who feels bad for us. He's saying we have a high priest who empathizes, who feels it, who understands what it feels like. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. And then let us approach God's throne with, uh, of grace with confidence so that he may, so that we may, I can't read today. Let's just start over from the top. Just kidding. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is describing Jesus, but I think that at its core, this is describing the nature of Jesus as our wonderful counselor, not a distant, disconnected God that doesn't quite understand why we struggle with these things in life, but a God who gets it, who empathizes. And at the very end, to cap it all off, he says, so because Jesus, the wonderful counselor, understands and empathizes and has been tested and tempted and and dealt with the things that you have dealt with, we can approach God with confidence and know that he will give us grace and mercy in our time of need. In the darkness, the land of deep darkness, maybe, that you're feeling. The confusion or the brokenness, the, the frustration or hurt or illness. We have a, a savior, a God that understands. And there's this promise that because he understands, we can be confident when we go to him. I think if we truly understood the, the fullness of this, and myself included in this, I think we would let out like the largest collective sigh. Because we can know some of these ideas in our head, but we still walk around with this sense of God doesn't understand it. God doesn't understand me. And I can't really be fully honest. I can't, I can't get past the shame that I'm carrying or the guilt or the confusion or the doubts that I have or the, the frustration about this or that or whatever it might be. I think that we carry this, this stuff around, but Jesus, he understands. He empathizes. He dealt with pain like we do. He's, he was hurt like we are. Christmas. The Christmas story shows us that Jesus knows what we are going through. And when we talk to him, he understands. Um, British novelist Dorothy Sayers has this quote, and obviously she has a much better way with words than I do. Uh, But I think this quote is really powerful. It it talks about this idea. It says, the incarnation, which is Jesus, uh, God becoming flesh, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. 
He can exact nothing from man. Essentially, he can't take something or, or, or pull something from man. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life. Can I get an amen? Uh, and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. There is this thing that is so crucial for us to hold on to, that God is a wonderful counselor and understands the nature of the darkness that you find yourself in. Maybe you wouldn't necessarily define it as darkness or deep darkness, but, but for all of us, there are these elements, there's these, these aspects of life where we start to wrestle or struggle. There's areas we need help. Maybe it's fear or worry in your life. Maybe there's stress in this season, in the holiday season, maybe it's financial strain that you're, you're carrying or, or the loneliness of what the holidays mean or the tension in relationships or your family or your marriage. Maybe there's just kind of a sense of, of a darkness that you feel with your work and your calling and, and what it is that you do with your time between nine and five or your health or the stage of life or anxiety, depression that you're carrying with. We all have these areas in our lives that are kind of shrouded in a darkness. And there is this promise of a light dawning and that we have a savior, a wonderful counselor who understands what it is like, who can empathize with us. I've fallen into this trap over and over again of imagining kind of God as kind of this King Triton-esque character floating on a cloud, just constantly bothered with how I can't get it right. I don't know if anybody else feels that. There's a skit, uh, it was probably 15 or 20 years ago, it was this recurring skit on Saturday Night Live. Um, it was called The IT Guy. And it was Rob Schneider, uh, just a real family comedian. Um, so, uh, but the skit would happen, it'd be somebody in an office, and they couldn't figure out how to get their computer to print, or whatever the thing was, and so they would call IT, and he would come up, and he would be like leaning over their chair, and like, yeah, just push the print button, and would right click, and then eventually it would always be like, move, let me do it, and he'd like push him out of the way, and he'd sit down and super comically like just start hacking away on a keyboard, but I think sometimes I fall into this trap of imagining like God having that same level of annoyance with me, and for sure with you, but this sense of like, you guys, I gave you the book, you know what to do, just move, let me do it, let me just save you. I, I kind of picture this sense of like, man, he just must continue to be disappointed and shocked that somehow I haven't been able to figure this out. But the name Wonderful Counselor and what comes along with that is this promise that that's not at all it. It's the description of a God who gets it, who has been there, who has walked that journey and empathizes with us. And there could not be anything more beautiful for us to hold on to than that promise and that name. I, um, I've shared 
about this before. I think it's an important thing to t- talk about. Um, I have a counselor. I think he's good. I don't know. I'd say he's wonderful. Um, but uh, I have a counselor I go to. I've gone to a counselor for years, and it's a difficult thing, and there's some weeks when it's easy, and there's some weeks when it's not, and and after a few years of counseling, I'm still this way. Uh, so um, just imagine if I didn't go to counseling. Um, but uh, I, I have... Uh, I remember when I first started going um, a few years ago, or first started going back, I guess I should say, it was a few years ago, and there was a specific thing that I wanted some help with. And uh, it was probably three or four sessions into our meeting together, and he, he just kind of stopped me, and he has like the most gentle voice, um, and it's always a little bit scary how gentle his voice is. And he just says, you know... Um, I'm not really sure if there's much that I can do to help you because you already know the answer to all your problems. And I was like, awesome. But he didn't mean it as a compliment, <laughs> which I came to find out. Like you, you have articulated things that you want to, like that you struggle with and things that you want to change relationships, family dynamics, things like that. He's like, but every time you also tell me how to fix it, I'm like, I don't know why you're here. I was like, um, because I can't fix it. We continued talking about this idea, and he said, you just continue. Every time you articulate a struggle, he's like, it's as if you also have to let me know that you recognize that it's a struggle, and you know you could probably fix it if you needed to. It's like, I can't help you in that way. And I think that there's this reality for me, as he gently destroyed me in that moment, um, then I started to realize that what he was saying was totally accurate with him, that I, I, did, I showed up to our counseling appointment with solutions, but I think I do the same thing with God. I think I show up and I, I articulate my frustrations or, or whatever I'm struggling with, and, and then I also let him know like what those prayer requests are, which are really instructions on how to fix the problem. The sense of like, okay, here's what's going on. So if you could please just make them better, then I'll be better or whatever the thing is. And I think we have this thing. I think it comes from being maybe embarrassed or the shame of, of having to articulate what our brokenness or our darkness or our, our issue or struggle is. I think that it makes us feel better. I know I have an issue, but I also know how to fix it. I haven't fixed it but I at least know how to. I think there's a sense almost of, uh, it allows us to hold on to some sort of dignity, I think maybe is, is what we choose to believe. We tend to, to offer a solution along with our problem. Um, every once in a while when Ez starts feeling sick, my wife, when she starts feeling sick, um, she kind of gets this like little whirlwind of like, thoughts and things, and, and then she's like, okay, I know what to do. And then she starts going through this list of home remedies, and she starts just checking the boxes. And instead of going to a doctor and having them just say, like, okay, here's the issue, she has, like, a list of, like, here's the 10 ways I could probably fix this without going to a doctor. And inevitably, it ends up with her, you know, stumbling through the house, muttering something about, not enough apple cider vinegar, or something, you know, like, I need one more essential oil to the mix. Or, uh, but there's this, this reality where we, we have a wonderful counselor who we are able to go to, who the scripture 
tells us, that promises us that he understands, that he not only just can imagine, but he actually has experienced. And, and we can be confident in that space, but still somehow, if we get up the courage to actually go to the counselor, we still oftentimes go and, and hand the counselor the solutions And I think that this is just causing a lot of unnecessary tension for us. And what I really want us to hold on to today as we understand this idea of the wonderful counselor is that we don't go to Jesus with the answers. We go to Jesus with confidence. We don't need to go to Jesus with the answers to prove that we're worthy or worth it or that we have it figured out or that I have some sort of value or that I've, I've, I can show my work. I've, I've come up with five solutions to my issues. It's not showing up with answers. It's showing up with a sense of confidence because it says in Hebrews that he has grace to help us in our time of need because he has been on that journey. And so if we are... To truly understand Jesus as our wonderful counselor, there's a few things that we need to embrace. And I think there's three different kind of stages, and and we'll go through these quickly, but I think there's kind of three different buckets that maybe we fall into. And probably, um, I don't know that there's like one bucket that all of my life fits into, but if I were to imagine, or if you were to imagine maybe certain difficult scenarios, whatever your darkness or your struggle or your worry, however you want to identify it, if you were to think about that, I bet it would fall into one of these three categories. The first thing that we need to do, the first category that we have to work on is that we need to be brutally honest with the counselor. It does me no good to go to my counselor and not tell him the truth. It costs a lot of money. And it is not helpful. And I think that oftentimes, even though Jesus already knows, God knows our hearts, our minds, our failures, our struggles, our, uh, he, he knows, there is this important piece for us to learn to be brutally honest with God. God can handle it. God can take it. I think that oftentimes I try and kind of smooth, smooth off the edges a little bit in relationships because I don't know if I, my friends can really handle like the full weight of what I really think or who I really am. I think sometimes I try and smooth off some of the words because I don't want to hurt my spouse's feelings or, or whatever it is. And I think sometimes we try and do the same thing for God. Let me help him out a little. I don't know. Let me see if I can kind of t- dial it down. We say things like, God, I'm heavy-hearted. When in reality, we're freaking ticked off. We're upset. We're asking God for clarity. When in reality, we're doubting that he even knows, that he even hears. We need to be brutally honest with our counselor. It's not because he needs to know what's in our heart and minds, but because we need to have the experience of of trusting that we have a wonderful counselor. We need to be able to have and embrace that confidence that we can go to him because he understands. I lost my notes. God, God can handle it. Jesus can take the full weight, the full reality of who you are. In Psalm 22, David is writing, David says, uh, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, and, and David was called a man after God's own heart. 
David was a total screw-up, which gives me hope. Uh, he, he blew it all the time, and he wrote a ton of psalms about the beauty of God and the goodness of God, and then he also had moments where he would say things like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know for you, when was the last time that you felt like you were that honest with God, that you were that brutally honest about feeling abandoned or forgotten or left out to dry? Maybe it's doubts or frustrations because prayers weren't answered or, or I don't know what it is, but, but we need to learn to be brutally honest with our counselor. The second thing that we can do, and sometimes the thing that we struggle to do, is that we need to listen to the counselor's voice. This may seem a little bit obvious, but um, I, I don't want to totally date myself, but uh, my first car had an AM FM radio in it. And like the one with the little knob that you had to twist very like precisely to get to hear things without all the static. And I think the reality for us is that there's a ton of noise and a ton of static and a ton of voices and a ton of chaos in our lives. And we don't oftentimes take the intentionality to actually dial in, to tune in, to, to clear out some of that static so we can hear Jesus's voice, so we can hear God's instruction, so we can hear what God is telling us to do. We have this thing that we need to overcome of, of the chaos of life because God is speaking through all kinds of different ways. He speaks through scripture, reading the Bible. He speaks while we are praying. He speaks through worship songs and friends and nature and circumstances and God, God's speaking all kinds of different ways. And oftentimes, when we're listening to a song, or when we're hanging out with a friend, or when we're taking a walk through nature, we're also taking Instagram pictures of that nature, or we're checking texts from other friends, or we're uh, shazamming to find out what the song is, or whatever the thing is. There's always, we're never just doing one thing and allowing space for us to listen to our wonderful counselor's voice. John 10, 27, Jesus is speaking and he says, very simply, my sheep, listen to my voice. They listen. They could be doing all the things that sheeps do, but they also listen to my voice. I can hear my kids' voices on a playground full of dozens of kids. I can pick their voices out and there's a frequency that I can use where they hear me or stop ignoring me, whichever way it is. But I can find the dad voice and they can hear me over the chaos of the playground also. There's this familiarity with learning to listen to Jesus's voice, to the wonderful counselor's voice. And I think that some of us may have, we may have struggled with this because we haven't been intentional about tuning in. The third thing, is, we'll wrap up with this, the third thing, the third bucket, the third thing that oftentimes we struggle to do is doing what the counselor tells us to do. There is a difference between listening to someone and doing what they say. There's a, list, a difference between getting good advice and putting it into practice. Um, 
One of the things that I am terrible at is uh, when a doctor gives me uh, a prescription for medicine, they usually say something along the lines of, you'll start to feel better in two or three days, but you have to take all of the medicine for the next seven years or however much is in those tiny bottles. It's like, oh my gosh. I never, I don't think I've ever finished the medicine. I always forget because all of a sudden there's a sense of like, well, the immediate pain is gone and so I'm, I'm out. I'm gonna go the other direction. I'm not gonna drink this pink stuff anymore. There is this thing that we have to get in our heads. It's not just listening, but it's also actually doing what our wonderful counselor, doing what God is instructing, doing what Jesus is telling us to do. I think sometimes Jesus tells us to do things that are difficult or scary. I think a lot of the things that Jesus wants us to do actually make no sense according to common wisdom. You know, praying for our enemies, turning the other cheek, submitting to each other, submitting and serving our spouses. Like none of these are things that's like, yeah, for sure. I'll take all of that medicine. We do what we can to feel better and then we go back to normal. But there is this instruction, this important, crucial piece. And I think some of us may have heard Jesus tell us what we need to do and we are just scared to do it. We don't want to do it. It does not sound fun. It doesn't feel easy. And I get it because I feel those same things. I struggle with those same things. This is not a judgment on you. This is a reality of who we are. But when we find ourselves in this darkness, in the sense of being directionless or hopeless or wondering if it could ever change or ever get better or if I can dig out from this heaviness, It's not enough to just know the right thing. We have to do it. Jesus' half-brother said it this way. He said, don't fool yourself into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea who they are or what they look like. It is crucial for us to recognize that we have a wonderful counselor and we can be brutally honest and we need to learn to listen and then we have to convert that into doing what Jesus says. We don't go to Jesus with answers. We go with confidence. Confidence that we can show up and there is grace and empathy and mercy to help us in our time of need. And so the question that I want us to hold on to today, for each of you, if you were to take a moment and maybe close your eyes for just a few seconds, and maybe you already have something in mind, there's an area that's challenging or struggle or an area of brokenness or addiction, maybe there's just a sense of darkness, of heaviness in your life. I want us to be able to hold that thing as uncomfortable as it may be. And I want us to ask our wonderful counselor, what is it that you are leading me to today? What is the next right thing for me to do? Is it to to be honest about where I'm at, how I feel, what I've experienced? Do I need to just listen to 
how you would want me to handle or respond or act. Or maybe you've already heard Jesus' voice and today is an opportunity for you to take a step to do that thing that Jesus is calling us to do. Well, regardless of where you may be at in your faith journey, I believe that everyone has a next step that they can take. If you'd like more information about what it means to put your trust in Jesus, information about getting baptized or maybe even attending a Discover class to grow more in your faith, you can visit us online at southhills.org forward slash Costa Mesa and then scroll down to the next steps section. If you'd like more information about tithing or supporting South Hills financially, you can visit southhills.org forward slash giving. Thanks again for listening today, and I hope that I get to see you soon.